When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Michael Leviton, the writer and author whose work explores why we lie and why honesty might not always be the best policy as a society. Most people are not explicitly taught how or when to lie as a child, but whether it's glossing over difficult truths, telling little white lies, or sometimes big ones, lying is something that most of us all end up doing in one way or another. Writer Michael Leviton grew up in a family that never lied. In the Leviton household, honesty was the only policy. Following this principle, he lived a life of brutal honesty for three decades. And by the age of 29, he could only recall ever telling three lies. But in a world unprepared for his truthfulness, this led to complications in his school work and, of course, love life. He's channeled that unique perspective into his creative work as a musician, songwriter, as well as a writer. His book, To Be Honest, a memoir, explores the concept of truthfulness deeper. Here's Michael in conversation with our producer, Catherine Hughes. Michael, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining me. We're recording this with a bit of a time difference. You're in New York, I'm in London, the day's just begun for you. But I want to see if you had told any lies today. I know that I have. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I've told any lies today. I've I've omitted some things which used to feel like a lie to me. Like uh, telling someone I have plans tonight and not telling them what the plans were specifically. <laughs> I did that already. I think that's fine. <laughs> of course, everybody else thinks it's fine. <laughs> I would even class that as telling a lie. Uh, Yeah. Other people don't think omission counts uh, in a lot of cases that my heart tells me uh, omission counts. Did it pain you to do that or was it a natural 
is it natural by now? I'm used to it now. Yeah, it's been it's been about 12 years of uh, of omitting things. So now it doesn't feel wrong to me. I notice it every time I do it, though. <laughs> I don't. And having read your book, I felt like a very bad person. I was like, they just roll off my tongue. And then I was like, what if I reveal myself in this interview and everyone realizes that I'm just lying all the time? But OK, we'll get to where you're at now as we go on. But let's start at the beginning. Your mum and dad, you credit them with giving you this very honest path in life. And maybe the reason that, as you say, you lived for 29 years with only three lies to your name. Could you tell me a bit about their background and your early upbringing? It wasn't really necessarily calculated. My parents just had this way of living uh, that valued honesty. And, and our family had our own definition of honesty that didn't really have any bearing on the way anyone else talked about it. <laughs> so that's why I call us a, a little little honesty cult. Uh, just my family was like a little cult. We had our own definitions of words. You know, we didn't allow omission. Omission, usually people don't even think of that as, as lying in most cases, but we did. Uh, it's just the way my parents ended up. You know, they met when they were 14. They were reactive against their family backgrounds. And they kind of together as young teenagers came to a way of being together. And when they were raising kids, they were that way. So they didn't explicitly say these things. They didn't say these are the rules of our little honesty cults. They, they, they didn't even think of it that way at all. They just thought of it as the way we were and that we had our own values like everybody else has their own values. But what had pushed both of them to decide to live so honestly? Because they decided that separate to each other. It's not they met and then one day they thought, let's change how we are. There are things that shaped them into this. Okay. And I, I that you'd have to ask them about that, about when in their lives they kind of, how, how this worked for them, how it developed. But the sense I get is that my dad's family had elements of wild honesty and brutality. <laughs> I, I don't think of myself as having a lot of brutal honesty. It was more uncomfortable and unpleasant <laughs> honesty or, you know, um, mostly just made people uncomfortable. It wasn't very mean. But uh, my dad's family definitely had a lot of mean honesty in it. And that kind of got him used to that idea that you were going to get criticized. And it was important to know where you stood with everyone, that that was a value of his of his family history. And that a lot of people didn't like them for that reason. So he had something to imitate, but then he also had things in his family that he didn't like, that they weren't allowed to talk about certain subjects. He felt that sex was was taboo, you weren't allowed to talk about it, and that if he was too open about his emotions, he wasn't he wasn't allowed to do that. And he thought that was that was uh, oppressive. So he started to live in such a way that it rejected that, you know, but also kept a lot of the bluntness and tactlessness of his family lineage. So my mom's side of the family they lied a lot and demanded that my mom, even as a very small child, help them with their lies and kind of had a value system of, yeah, I can say horrible things about everyone um, and <laughs> they'll never find out, uh, you know, and you're a collaborator with me in these lies. And my mom found that so oppressive that she really liked the relief from that that she got from my dad. That's that's my suspicion. So at 14, they kind of started to adapt to each other and figure out this way to be together which, you know, had all kinds of difficulties and problems. But starting at 14, they were together and, you know, they had me when they were 28. They had had a pretty solid system that had become, at that point, second nature for them. And that was their way of living. Your dad, you talk about criticisms. He was a critic as a job. He was a music critic. And you would take his criticisms on board, but you would also kind of emulate them in your life, interacting with schoolmates and teachers. How was 
how was that? There were some very funny interactions that you had with teachers. Maybe not funny for them at the time, but now they read as very funny. That's that's one of the troubles is honesty, even though it made a lot of people mad at me and not like me, it was really positive for me, especially as a child. It wasn't positive for the people that had to deal with me, <laughs> which is unfortunate, but it felt good for me. It was really nice that I felt free to ask all the questions I wanted to ask and to comment on things and tell people my observations and to kind of see the absurdity in a lot of situations. But other people didn't appreciate that absurdity. Um, they felt called out by it or confronted or criticized, or it just made them uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes it betrayed emotions that I had that they did not want to deal with. Uh, I always loved crying as a kid and as an adult. A lot of people just did not want to deal with a crying kid. Even if I was joyfully crying, that was not something that they felt comfortable with. So I would be critical of the way things were done. You know, I was the classic. If they were really upset about graffiti happening in, in my elementary school, I'd say, well, let's discuss why graffiti has to be against the rules. Maybe there's another way we could do this. And people would just go crazy. I mean, my teachers would just they hated it. And there are a zillion, a zillion examples. My first draft of the book was 500 pages long. I just included every single example and we just chose some of the best ones. <laughs> but I could go on forever with examples of me just asking teachers inappropriate questions. I mean, one time I remember the teacher explained leap years to the class and I, I raised my hand and was like, so all of our birthdays should shift a day every four years. And the teacher was like, no, they shouldn't. <laughs> I said, but isn't that funny, though, that if we actually count a year as 365 days, the birthdays should shift. And they were like, no, that's not funny. And that is not how we're doing it, Michael. Like, stop that. You know? <laughs> I think if you presented that to people, they'd say like, oh, yeah, an inquisitive child. We love that. But in practice, the teachers who are dealing with it day in, day out, they do not want that child in their classroom. Yeah, they, they had no interest. I was just obnoxious to them. <laughs> I thought I was being so fun. <laughs> I think that many people tell small lies or evade the truth because maybe they feel shame or maybe they feel vulnerable revealing themselves like that. And also you reference like you were very open with your emotions. You would just cry whenever you felt happy or sad. But a lot of people, particularly British people, I'd say Americans are a bit better at this. We push that down. But do you ever remember feeling shame and vulnerability as a child and want to lie to cover it up? What was your relationship with these emotions? It makes me feel like a psychopath to say it, um, but I, I didn't really grow up with a lot of shame. And the idea was that if you were ashamed of the thing, you know, why were you doing it? If you thought it was wrong or you thought it was embarrassing, maybe just don't be that way. And then you don't have to hide anything. You know, you could just be yourself because you can stand behind it. Now, sometimes there are things that couldn't be avoided. Like I believed I was ugly as a child. and I could be ashamed of being ugly, but I thought, well, what's the point of that? I mean, I might as well just accept the realities of my situation. Why don't we all just accept the realities and like do that instead of being consumed by shame all the time and having to like pretend I thought I was good looking or something, you know, I mean... And you tell yourself, I'm going to accept this, and then you could just accept that. Things you were ashamed of that were just a part of who you were, you could accept them if you were allowed to. My parents, I think, were of the idea that hard things to accept shouldn't be avoided because then you never really emotionally acclimate to them. You were being protected from them, but it meant that when they came up later in life, you would feel destroyed. The shame would destroy you because you were never allowed to confront it. As a child, things that I found shameful or like wearing glasses, I remember I was like felt like nerdy because I wore glasses, <laughs> but I was like, well, I should just accept that I'm going to wear glasses 
for my whole life. You know, uh, it's not going to change. I'm going to need glasses. That's who I am. I might as well accept it. If someone had instead spent the whole time being like, no one would ever think glasses are nerdy. That's not real. If they said glasses are nerdy, that's just one person and no one else in the world thinks that. If if the whole thing was glasses are cool and trying to tell me this over and over again, I wouldn't have been able to accept the reality that I would be considered nerdy at a lot of points in my life for wearing glasses or that I would be made fun of for wearing glasses. And once I was allowed that, I could think things like, oh, that's so absurd and it's ridiculous that people think glasses are nerdy. I'm embarrassed for the people who think that. Because they've just accepted societal ideas that make no sense. They're so silly. And I was spared shame a lot of time because I could accept things in that way and allowed me to confront what I thought about society's negativity about glasses. Shame, I feel. Sometimes it's something you feel within yourself, but sometimes it's something that someone else puts on you. How someone reacts to what you're doing that isn't positive and then you feel shame. But it sounds like you had all these mechanisms that if someone was judging you, you could just kind of move past it and be like, your judgment isn't necessarily correct. Or you believe that because of X, Y, and Z, but I can carry on without feeling the weight of shame. Yeah. Well, other people's judgment was not very useful to me. Like it didn't make any, I I got to choose what to accept and what not to from other people's judgment. And a lot of the time, and again, this is, it lacks compassion in my mind now, but when kids would make fun of me, I would feel embarrassed for them. I thought they sounded stupid. I'd be like, you guys believe in the beauty standards of the world? Like, you guys believe that the thing that you were taught to think is cool is cool? Like, don't you guys interrogate anything? Like, you guys just really just accept all this stuff. There's a scene in in my book where I talk about the kids are making fun of each other for picking their nose. A kid makes fun of me for picking my nose. And I'm like, we all know that everybody picks their noses, right? Can't we just accept this? You've all picked your nose before. Why would you make fun of somebody else for picking your nose? I was very embarrassed for them. I was like, what kind of idiots? You would make fun of somebody else for something you do? I didn't even understand it. If someone judged me for something that was true, that made sense, I would consider it and try to change my behavior or I would accept it. But most of the time, that wasn't even what people were shaming you about. They were shaming you about things that I had been given the faculty to see as nonsense or see as disingenuous. So I didn't have to take it in. It was like it didn't count. The picking the nose example, all of those children, they want to say what their friends are saying. No one wants to be the odd one out. Did you ever feel exasperated that it was seemingly you against the world or your family against the world? My parents, I think, set me up for the idea that we would be pretty isolated, that by being yourself, you would meet the right people. You know, the right people would be attracted to you. And the people who couldn't be honest and couldn't understand you would be repelled by you and that that was a good thing. There were the people who wanted to really know you and that, that wanted to understand you. And those were the only people that counted. I didn't really need to worry about the judgment of anybody else, which is really not a great strategy in retrospect. But it was very moving as a kid because I didn't have to take in all of this horrible stuff from other kids. By not caring what they thought, I was very free um, in a way that other kids weren't. And I genuinely didn't care. I mean, it's a, a terrifying thought. Um, <laughs> but I really felt very little. I was laughing while people were making fun of me. I, I, I saw the absurdity of it. It makes sense. It's just ignoring all the complexities of the world and people and emotions. <laughs> but I guess as a child, as a child, that's fine. You have this very simple blueprint. It makes sense to follow in every way. But as we learn, as you've learned, as you get older, things get a bit trickier. So can we talk about family camp, which... It's a massive part of your book. 
Yeah. So um, I call it family therapy camp. That's not the official name of it. Um, but my family for a week every year in the summer would go to the top of this mountain in the woods. Everyone would sleep in tents and there were facilitators, which was the what they called the therapists. I guess you're not supposed to call it therapists because they were there in an unofficial capacity. But there were facilitators to help people do therapy in front of an audience. And you'd kind of be in the woods in these folding chairs and somebody would volunteer to do therapy in front of you. They called it work, not therapy. I think, again, for legal reasons, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, I started going when I was 16. It was a, a big influence on me because I was watching adults do therapy in front of me and seeing what was really going on with them, with adults, you know? So I could never unsee that. Suddenly it was like, oh, okay. Everyone in the world is having these kinds of problems with their parents. They're feeling insecure about these things. They have this hidden pain that they won't admit. They have all these tears inside them. They're not showing anyone. And it was a very powerful thing to find out. And as a 16, 17 year old, I couldn't see anyone else as as honest. The teenagers at school were just trying to look cool. It was obvious to me that they were not showing any of the things that were really going on with them. And I couldn't take it seriously. How could I get involved in the teenage drama if I had just seen these people pouring out their hearts and saying the most the deepest things they had in front of me? That became my new metric for reality. Therapy is a very private thing for many people. Was there some kind of mission behind it being public? There are a lot of reasons to do group therapy. And there were lots of types of group therapy at family camp. There was one where you'd sit in a circle, you know, and there's one where there's an audience. But the, the one where you'd sit in a circle, you know, they'd have men's group or women's group or teen group, children's group, elders group. <laughs> so you'd also be, just do therapy with people that are of your demographic or that are relating to the kinds of things you're talking about. And also that it's confidential among that group. So you could talk about your issues as a husband uh, or as a parent without your kids there or without your wife there. And also that you were relating to other people, that you would see that other people, other people could comfort you. They could express that they have the same situation, feeling the energy of other people responding to your deepest problems, being vulnerable in front of other people instead of just a therapist has its power. So I think that was the idea. They, of course, do group therapy in so many areas of life and AA, you know, is all done in groups. Um, so a lot of people, I think, at family camp became incredibly close friends. And, you know, you felt like they knew you in a way that the people in your regular life didn't. But there was a bit of a, maybe a double-edged sword, something a bit tricky with this <laughs> confidentiality and the honesty at the same time. And you've mentioned that the men's group and the women's group, and there was also a children's group, which was separate. This really trickled into your own family life, especially with your parents. It contributed to their separation. Um, <laughs> so the shortest way I can say it is that my mom left my dad for someone else from family camp. And that then they all continued going to family camp together and working out their divorce in front of us and kind of in front of family camp. Uh, now, <laughs> so so uh, this happened in 2000. So that's when I was 19, 20. And we'd been, I'd been going to family camp for, for three years or, or something like that. And that was being worked out every year, kind of in one way or another until my last year there in 2007. So that that's like seven years of kind of arguing about what was going on with my parents. 
both the man my mom left my dad for and my dad were in the men's group together, which was a subtext to everything that was going on in men's group for that entire time. The kind of joke that they ruined men's group because everyone was afraid that if they said anything that somebody would steal their wife or something um, and people didn't want to be vulnerable anymore. And my mom was incredibly upset because men's group could talk about her or talk about what's going on without her knowing because everyone was keeping it confidential. And if her new boyfriend told her anything, everyone would think he was horrible and he was breaking confidentiality. So there was a lot of drama that came out of it. And some people kind of felt for a period that we had ruined family camp. <laughs> oh, we had been too honest for family camp and we'd ruined it. No one would want to talk anymore. And everyone was afraid everyone would steal their wives. And it was it was pretty rough. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I'm laughing. <laughs> My dad still goes. <laughs> My dad still goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I haven't gone since 2007. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Moving on to your own love life. Dating is typically a bit of a dishonest game for most of us. And you observe this. We hide the worst bits of ourselves, whereas you would bring everything to the table in the first 30 minutes of meeting someone. How would that go down? So I, I had a girlfriend for most of my 20s. And when we broke up, that was my first time really learning how to date at all. So that was when I was 29. So when I first started, I was very hung up on the idea that I didn't want to deceive anyone. And I knew what my likely flaws were and the things that they probably wouldn't like about me. And I figured I should just tell them those things right up front because it felt like tricking them if I didn't. <laughs> and I, I, my friends advised me. They said, no, that's not tricking people. You put your best foot forward until they like you. And then they find out if they forgive those things later or maybe they'll have a different perspective on them later. But I didn't think that was right. So I felt I should tell them any potentially troublesome information about myself from the start. Otherwise, it's like getting them to date me under false pretenses. I don't know. It felt like a con. I That was how it started. <laughs> Would they tend to react well to this or? No. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, they thought I was crazy. They couldn't understand it at all. You must have been aware that they were not tricking you. I'm doing quotations. They were tricking you in a sense. So wouldn't you feel like it's more dishonest if you're bringing... 100% truth to the table, whereas they're holding back. At the, at the time, like what did I, I was looking for the right kind of person. So I kind of imagined that I would sell these things and then somebody else would, if they wanted to continue with me, that they would feel happy. They knew where they stood and then they could tell me those things about themselves I, I, that they would realize, oh, I'm talking to an honest person. I can be honest, too, <laughs> you know, and then they would shed their oppressive honesty that they felt they had to do for other people and be honest with me. That that obviously wasn't what was going to happen, but uh, which I figured out pretty fast. That was my hope. <laughs> but you did find one person who was willing to be in a very honest, open relationship. And this was your seven year relationship. She's called Eve in the book. You're both completely honest with your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings. So what was it like to be in this relationship where everything's on the table, no matter how irrational or how fleeting or overly emotional, you just put it out there? How does that go down? So it was a it was a gradual thing. I think that Eve really wanted to be honest. 
for all kinds of reasons. And I gave her that permission. So this fantasy that I had that I could change people and show them that being more honest had this beauty to it and that they could trust me to hear their honesty and these things, that that actually pretty much worked over time. But that once I was in that situation, it became clear that there was a lot of trouble in that. Problems that I couldn't have anticipated and things I didn't like about it even. <laughs> you know, but well, like the making a huge fight out of anything because someone would say, I have a crush on another person and I'm thinking maybe I want to be with that person. What do you think about that? And, you know, what do you think of this person? And us having full conversations about her crushes on other people and whether or not we should stay together like a lot but saying you know i want to be with that person just in a fantasy a fleeting thought not i'm actually considering leaving you a lot of the time it was like i'm considering leaving you or i'm unhappy about this thing should i leave you and she would break up with me a lot you know and then decide again that she wanted to be with me so there was a lot of this kind of um but was that down to the honesty because i feel like the issues I could foresee with this is you have a mad thought. I have a mad thought, say, and I just say it out loud to my boyfriend. I don't really mean it. It just goes through my brain. Whereas if she's actually thinking she's going to leave and she does leave, is there another way of going about that? Yeah, well, there's what people do all the time, which is that they work it out internally. They decide whether to leave or not, you know, without talking to their partner about it. <laughs> So I was constantly engaged in these questions about whether we were happy and because maybe she just feels upset about something that just happened that day. But the conversation would become much bigger because we would actually talk about it instead of her just complaining to her friends about it and then, you know, moving on or just thinking, oh, that's so annoying. And then moving on, she would bring it up to me. And and I was like excited to, to know where I stood with her all the time. So I didn't want her to hide from me if she was upset at me. I didn't want her to hide from me if she was having thoughts about somebody else or that she wanted to potentially break up with me. I was happy that she was being honest with me, but it did escalate a lot. Did you ever wish that there were some things that she just didn't tell you, just didn't need to know? Did that ever start to creep in? It didn't at the time. At the time, I really stuck to the idea that I was really happy that I had a girlfriend who trusted me to tell me even these incredibly difficult things, that that was really powerful to me. And I still, of course, I assume she didn't tell me everything, that she still was hiding things of, of different types like anybody does or omitting things. But she did bring up a lot to me. And some of the things she brought up to me really changed me and helped me a lot. You know, some of her complaints about me uh, I, I were really life changing. So the whole time I really wanted to hear it all. That was my attitude. It was just it got so destructive that I couldn't deal with it anymore. And only afterwards was I like, yeah, I guess maybe relationships could, maybe you could have like a timing or a tact or you could pick your battles or you could, you could wait a while before bringing up something or you could work it out on your own without involving your partner in it, that those things have value. You know, they don't make you just a liar. I would feel like my partner doesn't know me or I don't know the person I'm with. Like we're strangers. If she's having all these feelings I don't know about, that's so stressful and depressing. Like I don't get to know my girlfriend and she knows that I don't really know her. I mean, that's that seemed horrible. But now I have a different perspective that I can see why people don't show everything all the time. My heart still tells me a lot of people have relationships where they just don't know each other, where they don't share what's going on with them and that that isn't good either, that there's a balance. Was this the moment she's leaving you and coming back seemingly every week by the end of it and eventually you break it off 
is this the catalyst for when you decide to step back from the honesty train? Yeah, it was a, it was a few different things. A few different things made me realize I had to be less honest. Pretty much everything in my life was going really badly. I couldn't really keep a job. Honesty caused a lot of problems in being able to make enough money to live. Also, I was even having problems with my family. I had written something about my family that was just brutal, outing a lot of difficult things that had happened, you know, and I expected my family to be okay. And my dad was troubled by it. That was causing a lot of problems. And my girlfriend, who I loved, everything went wrong. And then I started trying to see other people and everything was going wrong. And I had also I had problems with all my friends. I would have estrangements with friends like every week, you know, everything was so difficult. Finally, someone I went out with, actually, who I was having kind of a bad date with, (laughs) one of my early bad dates, said to me, you think this stuff is right? Like, you have this value system. You think it's right. But if it makes everybody hate you, how right can it be? Maybe if it makes everybody hate you, it isn't right. Maybe you should think about how other people feel. And that was really the turn was that my ideas about right and wrong and my moral ideas, if other people didn't like them, what was the point of them? You're supposed to try to make people happy and make people enjoy their relationships with you. That's good for everyone, not just for me. It's kind of reorienting my mind around acting in a way that people liked. I know it it sounds so obvious to everyone else. I thought that was like people pleasing, you know, like that you were denying yourself and your own values by just trying to do whatever other people wanted of you. But switching my mind to being like, I'm going to try to make other people happy, as happy as I can. And if things go wrong, it's my fault that I'm supposed to read people and see what kind of relationship they want to have and do what I can. And that's kind of how it happened, I think. When we call people a people pleaser, often it's it's quite negative. But I feel like people's intentions when they are a people pleaser is a positive. When you decide to start being less honest, you've described this like a teaching process or maybe even an unlearning process of your previous habits. There were books that you read to help you through this. What were these books? Okay, I read a whole bunch of books. First of all, they're like the dating ones. And I didn't get through all of these. But I read The Rules or some version of The Rules, which is the dating book for women from the 90s. Uh, I read The Game, the the depraved nightmare book, like the pickup artist book. I read The Art of Seduction, which is actually very different from what it sounds like and is actually this weird scholarly history of getting people to like your ideas or to understand you. I mean, it'll talk about like actual seducers like Casanova and Don Juan and stuff, but it'll also talk about Winston Churchill or like Elvis or Joan Didion or whatever. Anybody who ever had to get people to accept ideas or see them as uh, someone they wanted to be around or someone they wanted to trust, a charismatic force. So it's a kind of more open version of what seduction is. That book was actually very useful. I found that book very powerful. Because that's kind of what people do when they move through life and they see someone and they like the way that they act. They think, what is it about you that's making me like you and how could I emulate that? But I guess previously you weren't taking the world in that way. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about how to get people to like me at all. That was just not a thing. And then once I decided to think about it, I was like, I have no idea how people do this. (laughs) You know, what are the things people do to get people to like them? I just didn't know what they were. I'd never even thought about it. And they all sounded wrong to me also. They all sounded immoral. They sounded like tricking people. Uh, They all were false to me. So I, I had to go through a lot of kind of revising. I also read etiquette books. I read two etiquette books, not cover to cover, but a lot of them. And every single solution they suggested for problems seemed immoral to me. It was actually hilarious reading it being like, oh, well, oh, you you don't want to invite someone to your party? Well, just lie. And I'd be like, wait, what? (laughs) 
not like they acted like lying was the most incredible thing humans had ever come up with. And it was the most basic idea. That's how you solve everything. Everyone's feelings are saved. It's so great. And a lot of it was one thing that blew my mind is that everyone was supposed to kind of understand that we were all lying. That politeness was an agreed upon system of lying, which made no sense to me. I was like, if they know I'm lying, aren't they offended? Plausible deniability. Right. And that plausible deniability, which I, I, I couldn't even understand. I had it took so long for me to accept these concepts. I was like driving my friends crazy being like, well, how does this work? Wait, do you guys do this? Do you actually like do you lie in this circumstance? Why? Well, what happens when you do that? And everyone was just going nuts. Like, Michael, this, these questions are insane. <laughs> Well, because it is insane, but it's so ingrained in so many of us. Your behavior in another culture, a more direct culture, America's quite direct in the grand global scheme, but I've had Russian friends or Spanish friends and they meet British people and they're just so confused because they say, well, if you don't want to go out tonight, why wouldn't you just say you're not coming? Why would you say, oh, well, I see how I feel or maybe I'll meet you out there. Maybe I'll meet you later. Why would you do that? But to us, we just all accepts it and we know what that means. We know that means no. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, uh, this is this is incredible because I used to not understand why people hinted at things instead of just saying them. It, it didn't make any sense to me. But I eventually learned that the hint in their mind was very clear that in a world of people who all hint in the same way, that is directness. Another book, actually the book that influenced me most, and I read it a bit later, so I thought of it last, is Deborah Tannen's book, That's Not What I Meant. And she's a linguist that categorizes communication styles. And she's not actually joking, but I find this book incredibly funny because it's just the way people get confused by communication style differences. So something as simple as, I mean, this is such an embarrassing example. Um, someone would, would say to me, oh, come by any time. And I would show up and they'd be like, what are you doing here? Are you crazy? And it would turn out that they didn't mean for me to actually come. I mean, that kind of stuff happened to me all the time where I would do something and I'd be like, but it's what you told me to do. And they'd go, no, I was just saying the thing you're supposed to say. Now, that's a classic Deborah Tannen communication style mistake, that they're direct informational people and they're indirect rapport based people who are trying to have good feelings it's not about the information you're imparting. It's about the feeling. So saying come by anytime is me saying I like you. It's not me actually telling you to come by. That's crazy. You did manage to unlearn this somewhat and relearn a different communication style, which I think sometimes if someone belongs to one communication style, they can't quite get their head around the others. But you studied it, you learned it. And in your post-honesty era, I was going to call it your post-truth era, but that would mean something completely different. You learn how to say the things that people want to hear. But a friend picks you up on this newfound intimacy that you have with a lot of people. And they accuse you of giving away your intimacy too easily, which effectively makes the earned intimacy of a friendship less special. To me, this kind of sounds like you learned the art of charm, for better or worse. Would you agree that what you were doing there is charming people? Okay, well, you're talking about a lot of different things. At one point, I was making rules for myself all the time. That was one of the ways that I could remember what I needed to do. One of my rules was to try to read what people wanted from me and give it to them if I could. Now, that meant if people didn't want honesty, it was absurd to give it to them. 
if somebody was saying, what do you think of the thing I just did? And I didn't like it. I had to read if they actually wanted criticism or if they wanted me to say I liked it. If they wanted me to say I liked it, why not? It didn't matter. I, it was an exchange about something else. And so I often someone would say, what do you think of the show? And I'd say, oh, it was great. That was just necessary. And I and I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong anymore. It kind of hurt my heart to do it. It still made me kind of feel ill and made my hands kind of shake to do that kind of stuff every time. But I understood that people, you know, it didn't mean the same thing to them. It meant to me. So that was a big part of it. It was about making people happy and, and meeting them where they were, that there was no reason to force honesty on people. So that's the first thing. The next thing was that I always asked people a lot of questions. That was a big part of my honesty. I'm a curious person. I actually wanted to know about other people. Other people were often made uncomfortable by the questions. I was supposed to ask more standard questions or less invasive questions. There were all kinds of all kinds of issues with the questions I would ask. It was uh, at one point when I was asking someone a lot of questions and talking to them about themselves that they said, well, you know, you're treating me like I'm really special and I'm not special to you. You do this with everybody. Right. And I was like, yeah, I ask everybody. I'm curious. And she's like, yeah, well, that's you should basically save this for the people that are special to you. And the things you tell you told me a story about your family. You shouldn't do that with just everyone because then it doesn't mean anything. That intimacy is earned by you doing those things. Now, this is still troublesome for me. I love telling stories from my life. I wrote a memoir. This is where I fail. I'm still not perfect at this. Anyone who's dealing with me has to know that I tell a lot of personal stuff to everyone. And that I ask personal questions to everyone. That doesn't mean the thing that a lot of people think it means. I've definitely been around people who thought I was in love with them when I was just <laughs> asking them questions because <laughs> I was curious. But to me, that sounds like charm. That's what charm is. If someone's very charming, <laughs> everyone thinks that that person has a special interest in them. And it can be a good thing or a bad thing. In Britain, there's an acknowledgement that a lot of our bad politicians are actually quite charming as people. They know how to turn it on, make someone feel special and stage this intimacy. And it sounds like you clicked on how to do that, whereas some people would say that charm is something you're born with. You either have it or you don't have it. To me, this sounds like you've learned how to be charming. Yeah, I, I you can't can disagree. Speak, I can't speak to my own level of charm. <laughs> there are definitely people who find me very charming and people who are off put by me. Also, keep in mind, I have gone through different levels of honesty over time that there was a period where I was really much less honest, where I think I was pretty dishonest and people really did respond well to it. Asking questions could be used as a dishonest technique where you would get them talking. and You'd never have to express anything about yourself. Ira Glass told me that when he interviewed me. Ira Glass said, oh, I got into asking questions originally because it meant I never had to say anything about myself. And I was like, that is incredible. <laughs> You know, and people love to talk about themselves often. So if they're with someone and that person's showing a lot of interest, they feel great. Yeah. Yeah. So there were things even in my dishonest days where I felt I was most dishonest that did work really well with people that people really liked. But I felt pretty uncomfortable. So I, I corrected again. And now I'm probably too honest again, but I'm definitely not as honest as I used to be. I, I often am saying, oh, when I was younger, I would have done this, <laughs> which is like, I shouldn't do that either. That's too honest again. But yeah, so I like to think that I'm more charming now or that I found ways to be more likable than I was when I was younger. I certainly do not have the massive number of problems that I had when I was younger. To wrap it up, I'm going to ask if you have one or maybe two standout lessons from this journey with honesty. Oh boy, I don't know if I'm in any position to give advice. Maybe that's the advice. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, don't listen to me. <laughs> I'm coming from the, I have the opposite problems everyone else has. So, I mean, like, it's hard to advise. Um, I think that it is really good to 
find something moving in telling the truth about yourself and to hear the truth of others. I believe in that as a thing that is powerful. And I, I guess there's all kinds of people who say you got to be vulnerable and that's the way to something. I have found that, you know, falling apart in front of somebody emotionally, crying in front of somebody. I have found that if it's the right person for you, they're moved by it and they want to be there for you. They are more connected to you when they know the truth about you. Now, I know that there are all kinds of cases where that isn't true, but there are a lot of cases where it is. And so I still have faith that a lot of people who feel imprisoned by the inability to be honest, that like they could find catharsis and they could find something really moving and being honest with the right person. Um, it's really sad to not have anyone really know you and not really know anyone else. I think we should all avoid that, even though it doesn't have to be as extreme as me. I, I don't know. Maybe that's my <laughs> best advice. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. That was Michael Leviton. His book, To Be Honest, a memoir is now available. I've been Catherine Hughes. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via apple podcasts you just need to hit the subscribe button and if you're not an apple user don't worry we're working on something for you too thanks for being a listener supporting intelligence squared and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too what are you doing right now perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run or on the commute but wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.